1: Well, we've made it to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. Uh, Once again, a lot to talk about throughout the week in the news here locally and across the country. Um, I hope all of you are looking forward to a restful and healthy weekend. But uh, before we get to that, we've got a lot to talk about on Political Rewind today. I I do want to amplify one thing that happened on the show yesterday. You, we played a, a little bit of an interview that C.T. Vivian gave to a reporter in Selma on the 50th anniversary of the march. And um, I got an email from someone who says they like, like the show very much, but they thought that I, I owed it to the reporter who did that interview, whose voice you hear, to name her. It was Amy Goodman, a longtime journalist, uh, was working at Pacific Pacifica Radio Uh, When she did that, her show was Democracy Now!, the person who wrote me, and I appreciate it, said, how would you like it if somebody used your voice on an interview and didn't give you credit? Uh, Fair point. So Amy Goodman was the voice you heard if you were listening to us yesterday with that uh, conversation that she had. With C.T. Vivian back in 2015. Okay, let's uh, introduce the panel and get right to the work of the show today. Jim Galloway is with us as he is on Mondays and Fridays, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and of course, he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Ah, thanks. Hail and well met. It's Friday. Yeah, thank goodness. (laughs) We're uh, also joined by Professor Audrey Haynes, political science professor at the University of Georgia, who you hear regularly on Political Rewind. She also uh, is the founder and director of the Applied Politics Program at UGA, which trains young people for careers in politics. Audrey, how are you holding up out there in Athens?
0: Well, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I was today, Friday. I've lost track of time. Uh, That's okay. But um, we're getting ready. We're getting ready to reopen. I spent all yesterday uh, working on preparation for classes for August 20th.
1: All right. So the state schools will all go back into session on August 20th. This is worth pointing out. And what was the final decision now made by the Chancellor of the Board of Regents in terms of in-person classes, for what uh, what classes, uh, how much will be online? Are freshmen going to be on campus? Who's going to be on campus from the start?
0: Well, from my understanding, everyone is going to be on campus, although I know some schools um, are doing some you know, modified uh, practices like, you know, freshmen are going to be here during this semester and then seniors at some other semester. But we're going, uh, as far as I understand it, all face-to-face with some variation in different uh, schools and departments, depending on the types of classes. We are um, introducing a lot of uh, mitigating controls. For example, in my class, I have a class of 48 that is face-to-face, but I will only have 10 students in class, um, each session, rotating different pods of people into class um, and doing a lot of material, um, what they call it like high flex. Some of it will be online. Some of it will be live online. Some of it will be in class. But because my room is so small and we have such a limited capacity um, across campus with so many students, it'd be very difficult to socially distance. Um, In fact, my class barely sits 48. Um, and in, in the olden times, mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty pretty um, claustrophobic. But can you imagine with all the anxiety over COVID-19, packing that many people, and then perhaps inviting a guest speaker in who's 60 years old?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I wish you well. I wish you well, Audrey. I know you'll make it work as best you can. Uh, we're also, we got the the, the Georgia House of Representatives is well represented on today's political rewind. Democratic Representative Darshan Kendrick, who uh, district uh, encompasses Lithonia and and uh, boundaries beyond that a little bit. Darshan, glad to have you back on the show. It's been a while since you've been here.
2: It has. Thank you. Yeah, I'm proudly serving. Over 54,000 Georgians in East Decab and South Gwinnett born and raised here in the great state of Georgia. So uh, happy to be back on the show.
1: Yeah, you're a Decab. You went to high school in Decab County, didn't you?
2: I did. One of the uh, at the time I went to that high school it was a 30% graduation rate, uh, and I think they're up to 70% wow. now. So uh, I have quite uh, an interesting story. I'm going to write a book after the legislature. Chuck is going to be my first uh, person to buy it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, when you mentioned Chuck, we're talking about your uh, colleague across the aisle, uh, Representative Chuck of Strachan, who represents uh, Decula. Uh, Chuck, I'm very happy that we were able to get you on the show today for a lot of reasons. Uh, but Decula really is the heart of your district, right? I think uh, I-85 runs along the kind of the northeastern border of the district. 29 kind of runs right through the center of it. And then 316 cuts across the southeast edge. Have I got that about right?
3: That's right, Bill. Thank you so much for having me today. Excited to be with you all. And uh, districts northern and eastern Gwinnett County Uh um, the Kula, part of Lawrenceville, Hamilton-Mill area, Harbin's area, all in Gwinnett County. And you, uh, you know the state highway as well through that. Yep. Thank you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> One of the reasons I'm really glad, Jim, to have both Darshan uh, and Chuck on today is that they're, they're both on the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee, which is taking up an issue that has become much more high profile since the killing of uh, Ahmad Arbery uh, earlier uh, this year. Um, and, and that issue, of course, is the notion of citizen's arrests. Gregory and Travis McMichael, the father and son who are were first implicated in the shooting death of Arbery, uh, and then later William Bryan, um, all, the, certainly the McMichaels, McNe- if not Bryan, who is in a slightly different position, um, were able to make arguments that at first— had uh, law enforcement sort of giving them a, a, an immediate pass on this killing uh, that they were trying to make a citizen arrest, right, Jim?
4: Right. Well, it, it was that, that was that was one of the, the actual arguments that a, a prosecutor, even as he was disassociating yeah. himself with the uh, with the uh, uh, with with the. Uh, uh, with, with the uh, with the with uh, he, the case, he, he made the argument the shooting, that yeah. Th- yeah the shooting and he, he and he was he was saying these guys should not be charged because of the citizens arrest. We also need to point out that that this is kind of uh, that this 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 uh, uh, discussion of uh, the citizens arrest uh, law in Georgia is kind of a follow up to uh, uh, the, the passage of Georgia's hate crime bill, which was also sponsored by 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 Chuck here and also passed through his committee.
1: I, I want to mention that, Chuck. And I was going to do it in the introduction, but I assume it would come up in our conversation about citizens' arrest. Um, you, uh, we haven't had you on the show in in the context of having passed that hate crimes bill, and and we can t- fold that into our conversation about citizens' arrest. You were the you a Republican member of the House, last session, finally able to get real momentum, behind a measure that had been argued since about 2003, 2004, was needed in the state of Georgia. Uh, The legislature had rejected it consistently. Uh, You were the one who brought it back last year and just at the end of this session were able to pass it. So before we even talk more about how that plays into citizen's arrest, uh, give us a couple minutes about the effort that finally went into getting a hate crimes bill in this state.
3: Well, thank you, Bill. I was really honored to work on historic legislation like this. Georgia passed a hate crimes law in 2000, and as you just identified, in 2004, the Georgia Supreme Court held the law to be unconstitutional. And since that time, for 16 years, there have been efforts to pass a hate crimes law for Georgia because we were one of only four states without a hate crimes law in the books. So, in two, at the end of 2018, I started working on this issue. Republicans and Democrats had never had introduced bills, but had never passed either body of the General Assembly with a hate crimes uh, bill. And since 2004, and I went to Dean Calvin Smyre, a great leader in the State House, and also Representative Karen Bennett, the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, and other members, and um, I introduced a bipartisan uh, bill. Uh, an anti-hate crimes bill to address the issues that the Supreme Court had with the law that was on the books at the time and to build political consensus and unity to get this passed. So I introduced the bill in 2019 before there was a lot of attention on the issue like there has been in 2020. The bill actually passed the Georgia House in 2019 and was sitting in the Senate until we resumed the legislative session in the summer of this year and the state senate then passed a bill, and the governor signed the bill on the last day of the general assembly session. So uh, that um, I, I was honored to carry the bill and to have introduced it. I um, really appreciate the outpouring of uh, support and communication about just how historic this is. And I've spoken with folks who have been involved in state government for decades and talked about the efforts that have been in place to get this done. And Georgia now has a hate crimes law in the books, and I think that that's a uh, really wonderful message to send—that uh, Georgia is no place for hate. We are too great to hate, and we have a hate crimes law book on the books now to reflect that.
1: Darshan, um, one of the things that finally—I mean, the House passed the bill last year because you had a speaker who wanted to see it pass. But one of the uh, one of the events in the Ahmad Arbury slaying that really. Uh, I think helped push it over the top in a Senate that was somewhat reluctant. <clears throat> is um, we learned that what probably one of the last things Ahmad Arbery heard before he died was uh, the younger McMichael, the son, mm-hmm. uh, yell a racial a racial slur at him, which is just a horrifying thing to contemplate. But I think the fact that that was a racial crime. Darshan certainly had some impact on those who were at least a little reluctant uh, to give final passage to this bill this year, right?
2: Yeah, that and I think coupled with, you know, just where we are as a nation with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all these different things that are happening, uh, I think it culminated to something that happened in our backyard here in the state of Georgia uh, and brought it to, to the forefront. And, uh, you know, I tell people the hate crime legislation was only the beginning, it's not the end. I'm very happy that it passed and I rejoice with everybody that it passed, um, but it would not have stopped this this crime that happened in the Ahmaud Clay case and, and uh, it doesn't happen uh, going to effect retroactively. So it's not like the prosecution can, can charge them with, uh, um, you know, an additional hate crime legislation. Um, so it really is just the beginning of, or criminal justice reform as we know it. Um, but I'm certainly glad that it passed. It's unfortunate that this had to happen in order to uh, bring people from the other side. But um, but I, I'm, I'm certainly happy that we have gotten to a point where we see the need um, to pass this type of legislation and to prevent black and brown people from being shot down in the
4: streets. Uh, a question for both of you, both of you, uh, Darchan and, and Chuck. Uh, what, what specific uh, help us uh, kind of plow into the weeds a little bit? What are what are you, what specifically what specific changes? Are we look, talking about repeal of the entire law, or are we talking about significant changes here? So, uh, I, 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 well, wait. Religion. Before we
1: get to talk about changes, yeah, in terms of citizenship, I, what I'd like to do, Chuck, and, and I want you to answer Jim's question, but I'd like you to frame it in the context of the history of the of the citizens' arrest law first. I mean, this law goes back on the books more than a century, doesn't it?
3: That's right. Chuck? The after-passage of the hate crimes bill, we have turned it to, our attention to a discussion about the citizens' arrest statute. And the committee that I chair, Judiciary Non-Civil, has been holding hearings. We've already had two hearings since the legislative session ended to really look into this issue. The concept of citizen's arrest was established under common law going back centuries. And uh, it was codified in Georgia in the 1860s. There uh, have been relatively minor updates to the statute since that time. And so the real question has been, first of all, when is this statute used, if ever? And secondly, does it need to continue to be on the books? Now, every state, it's my understanding, has a citizen's arrest statute on the books. So the fact that we're really taking this up, I think, distinguishes Georgia and shows that we are working to be proactive to make sure that laws that are on our books need to be there. And um, and ultimately, the discussion has really turned in our committee meetings to the difference between an arrest and detaining someone. So if a citizen, uh, citizens uh, with the prevalence of law enforcement, in modern society, with the availability of cell phones, citizens don't need to perform arrest, and actually they don't, uh, we found okay. in practice. That's just not happening. Detaining is uh, really the issue in very limited circumstances, and, uh, and that discussion, I think, has really shown there's really bipartisan consensus to update the law, which includes a repeal of the statute and an update of the underlying
1: code.
0: This is one of the indications that, um, you know, and and people have talked about this with our state legislature before that, uh, you know, even though we are a part time legislature, there is a lot of thought given to uh, the growth of the state, the perception of the state, the reputation of the state. And this is one of the things I think that will add to uh, the credibility when people talk about working to, you know, you know reflect and represent all of the members of this state well and making some progress uh, real progress in this area especially in um, you know racial racial relations and uh, advancing equality so this is a very important step and it's a good thing that we have so many good people uh, including the the two legislators who are here working on it um, but uh, laws like this can often be abused, um, and, you know, the intent may have not always been uh, the best. So it's a good thing that we are advancing and will probably lead other states in this.
1: Darshan? And,
2: and yeah, so I just wanted to to provide, you know, some hard facts and context. I appreciate the, the chairman giving the overview, but let's be very, very clear about who this law was used uh, towards in the 1860s, which is the uh, decade of the Civil War uh, beginning and ending. Um, it was used unjustly to hunt down Black people, pure and simple, full stop. And I'm thankful that during the committee hearings, we've had great people like the president of the NAACP, James Wardall, who was able to give us some historical context about what the history of this bill is, so that going forward, we can understand um, why it needs to be changed and how we can do a better job to make sure that this this any laws that we have in the state of Georgia works equally among all citizens and and is not used to target a specific group of people. So I just want to make sure that we knew that what we were talking about when we we're talking about citizens' arrest.
1: I'm glad you put that into context um, uh, for us. Thank you, Darshan. So well, let's go to go back to Jim's question, uh, Chuck. Um, as you've heard testimony uh, in your hearings on this measure, can you give us a sense? Uh, Jim asked, is this going to look like a repeal? How much more specificity do you have now around just what you'd like this bill to look like, or is that still very much in the works? So I'll just tell you what the
3: testimony, summarized the testimony so far, and that has been that actual citizens' arrests do not really take place. Uh, in modern society. It just doesn't happen. What does happen is if someone is suspected of shoplifting, loss prevention might detain that person. If someone uh, has broken into a home, they might be detained by the homeowner while law enforcement responds. These are just some of the examples where there's limited circumstances where um, uh, a, a private person might need to act so that law enforcement can do their job. And what we've heard is there's Republican and Democrat support and interest, as well as stakeholder interest, in a repeal of the citizen's arrest statute and a replacement with a more definitive statute about the limited circumstances when that kind of detainer would be permitted. Now, this this is an incredibly important policy area with major implications. And so I'm glad that we have several months before the 2021 legislative session to really get into the details of this and ensure that there is consensus to truly address the underlying issue and that we have the best possible policy, which can even be a model for other states in the future.
1: Jim um, and Darshan, of course, can elaborate on this, but Jim, you and I uh, certainly both have been, we followed uh, legislators and in fact had some of them on the show in the aftermath of the, when the hate crimes bill was being debated, and Jim, we heard Democrats like Mary Margaret Oliver on the show uh, talk about a package of reforms that included citizens' arrest, but Jim uh, had a lot more reforms that especially uh, the, the Democrats in the House, and the Black Caucus particularly, wanted to see moving forward. This is kind of just the first of those, Jim.
4: Right, right, right. Uh, and, 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 and Darshan, I mean, what's the appetite there for, that, that you're sensing for uh, the, those other things? I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in, in particular of, of Stand Your Ground uh because of the, the 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 Georgia law that 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 says a a a a, a non aggressor in a in a confrontation has no, has no duty to back off
2: well i i would like if i could make a clarification so uh, the Georgia House Democratic Caucus, uh, put out essentially 12 proposals. I serve as the Chief Deputy Whip of the Georgia House Democratic Caucus. Um, and they came up with their 12, essentially 12 preliminary things of criminal justice reform they would like to see. And it's on my website and on the uh, Georgia House Democratic website. Um, Specifically, I have a bill that would limit um, qualified immunity for bad acting um, police officers and law enforcement officers, but a part of that package does include stand your ground um, laws. And I forget who the, um, the the author of that is, but um, this has been stand your ground uh, laws and, and trying to reform it has been a part of um, trying to be reformed in Georgia ever since Trayvon Martin since I have been there. Um, So I think it's just, you know, sort of coming to to the forefront, but um, obviously we would like for the House to take a look at all those proposals and more, um, because there is something happening in this nation where we need to make sure that our criminal justice system is is working equitably and that people are not taking the law into their own hands, which I think is a running theme of of criminal justice reform. But maybe the chairman uh, has some more insight on that.
3: Well, I think the issues that have been mentioned are, um, are definitely under discussion right now and uh, prosecutorial oversight has also been a, a real uh, question that has been raised. I expect that we are going to have hearings on the citizens arrest issue until we have proposed legislative language and then we'll move on to other issues, which might be up for discussion, which the committee might want to discuss.
0: So I'll chime in too and say that you know uh we've noticed that there's a real window of opportunity for actions like this. People are paying attention and uh a lot of what's going on is you know awareness being raised by virtue of um the fact that you know police have cameras and a lot of that information is available. We're seeing it. People have their cell phones and they're recording this. So the level of, of public awareness of what goes on is so visible. And lately, it's been so visceral that it sort of created an opportunity for uh, public opinion change, but also inward reflection. And there's plenty of data out there. Now that we have sort of the feeling and the, and the visuals, if you look at the data, the data can tell you that there have been a lot of actions and activities from within police departments that suggest these things need to be looked at, right? So people have been talking about this in academia for quite some time, and now it seems that government is taking it
1: up. Um, we're going to have to get to our first break of the show, but uh, Chuck, let me ask you a key question. I don't know if you're ready to give us the answer to this or not. Uh, how does the speak? has the speaker indicated to you, has David Rawson indicated to you that he looks favorably on uh, a, an effort to do something about citizens' arrest, or are you waiting to have that conversation when you get a little further down the road? The Speaker of
3: the House has been incredibly supportive of the effort on hate crimes and the effort on hearings into the issue of citizens' arrest, and I'm grateful for his leadership because that's really made this conversation possible.
1: All right, good. It's good to uh, get an answer to that one. Thank you very much for that. All right, we got a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. We'll do that after we take our first break. Joining us today: Representative Darshan Kendrick, a Democrat from Lithonia; Republican Chuck F. Stration, uh, from Decula; a Republican from Decula; Professor Audrey Haynes, and of course Jim Galloway. Uh, Jim, uh, a Fulton County Superior Court judge, has now ordered Governor Kemp and Mayor Keisha Bottoms, to go into mediation to resolve this <laughs> ongoing dispute about mandatory masks. The, the mayor wants them. The governor says she does not have the authority to supersede the regulations put in place by the emergency order of the state. It's become a a, a, a huge battle uh, with a lot of political consequences as well as public health ramifications. And now they're going to go into Mediation, um, and the mayor has toned down her rhetoric. She was on the Tonight Show the other night. said she was going to try to work this out with the governor informally, if possible. The lawsuit hasn't moved forward because they had trouble finding a judge who didn't want to recuse him or
4: herself. So,
1: where does this thing stand right now,
4: Galloway? Okay, well, we've, it looks like we've got a we've got a, a Tuesday hearing in Fulton County Court, uh, court before a before a third the, a third judge. Uh, And we do have a we do have an order, uh, an order that says, you know, just basically tells people to to, tells these two parties to to kind of to make nice and see if you see if you can work it out. It is, you know, it's it's I think it's a, a lot of it is is personal. Remember, this is this was done in the context of. Uh, The governor also sending uh, National Guard troops into the city without uh, without uh, without consulting uh, Mayor Bottoms. Uh, She has been on on uh, cable news shows uh, criticizing his approach to to the pandemic, specifically the the mask issue Uh, and and you know quite frankly i mean this was we, and we pointed this out on 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 our show last last friday was that this is a, a rather interesting lawsuit in that it targets atlanta and atlanta only even mm-hmm. though the gma tells us that there are probably 100 municipalities there that have issued some sort of restrictions on on their facilities on mask wearing in their facilities that 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 could be jeopardized if if kemp gets his way on this so it's a it's a uh, it's developed into a huge uh, policy discussion inside the courtroom.
1: Yeah, um, that's right. GMA issued another statement the other day. The municipal association saying that this they they support Mayor Bottoms on this because they support the concept of home rule. We should say, Audrey, <laughs> that the governor's uh, react, re- response to why Atlanta, why not other communities that have imposed uh, uh, restrictions like Athens, your own town your own town and county um is that bottoms went beyond mandatory masks she also rolled back reopening provisions and that was when the governor said she had taken a step too far so that at least is their rationale for why only atlanta although we suspect there are other political issues involved here but but audrey meanwhile other communities other cities continue to uh uh uh, debate or actually act on mandatory masks
0: Right, that is true. Although I will tell you, looking at recent polls, and there was a really good one that came out um, from the AP and NORC, uh, there's been, uh, just like we've seen a shift in attitudes in other areas, one of them is masks. I think people are taking um, prevention very seriously. And, you know, part of the response, I think, with uh, is the judicial system, with this, uh, with this, um, situation between Bottoms and Kemp is that the public is now, generally, the majority of the public is tired of any kind of infighting. They're tired of politics. They're really concerned about practical things, their kids in school, their safety, the economy. They want their leaders to come together, um, not play politics, but to solve some problems. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, It was a very positive step that uh, Mayor Bottoms initiated this conversation, and it's good to see that the, the judges are taking the right tone, figure it out. Let's not draw it out in court for a long time, solve the problem, and represent the people and solve this issue. But public opinion is changing. I will tell you, even on the area of schools opening, there is not a lot of support at all for schools opening the same way they always open. You know, the public is saying, even Republicans are saying, you know, there are security issues and safety issues there, too.
1: You know, Chuck, it's interesting uh, when you we have this debate about mandatory masks or, or just encouraging people to wear masks. I mentioned this briefly on the show the other day, and I want to mention it again because it's worth uh, at least uh, focusing on for a moment. Uh, Anthony Fauci who polls show us is the most trusted person in the United States when it comes to the, to the virus and how we should be dealing with it. Fauci just earlier this week said he himself does not believe mandatory masks uh, uh, rules are going to work because he doesn't think they're enforceable. And so the most trusted guy on this subject says he likes the idea that people be encouraged to wear masks. But that it shouldn't be made mandatory. It's another example, Chuck, of Fauci simply not being part of the political uh, 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 fighting about about all this, Chuck.
3: Yeah, I um, you know, I know personally, I choose to wear a mask when I'm out. The uh, governor's recommendation has been very consistent on uh, recommending that Georgians wear masks, and I think that. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, we all are. We all need to do our parts to ensure that uh, we're following the protocols that are put out by the CDC, and to ensure that uh, that uh, we reduce the spread. That we look after ourselves, and also members of our family, and others that uh, that uh, are in sensitive populations who um, uh, who might be in danger. And so, I think that this conversation is very important. I'm glad that we're having it.
1: The problem, Darshan, is that the virus has surged in Georgia, and that lends an awful lot of weight to those who believe that we just simply ought to have a mandatory mask policy that's consistent across the state, and it's one of the reasons the governor has been getting cr- criticized so heavily. I mean, there, there, there is no question that we're right back in the heart of a pandemic here in this state, Darshan
2: yeah you know i think um when you look at you know what things should be the government should get involved with uh we're not talking about a uh, personal situation where if somebody decides not to do something it's only going to affect them we're talking about a very spreadable disease a very contagious disease a disease where we have tried to encourage people and clearly the data shows that it's not working so you know what the definition of insanity is, is you're uh, trying the same thing and expecting different results. It is not happening. And so, you know, I'm constantly calling on the leadership to actually do that, which is to lead, um, because if we do not get this under control, uh, the president himself said that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But if we can prevent it from getting worse, I don't understand why we don't do that. Uh, there are so many countries led by women, I would, would like to know. Um, that got in front of this early on and and put in place mandatory masks, and now they are reaping the benefits. Um, and I really wish that the United States uh, could be a part of that number.
4: Yeah, um, Bill, the masking debate, and, and I don't know if you want to move in this direction right this moment, but the masking debate is is very closely tied to the, the issue of, of when and how we reopen Georgia schools across the state. Uh, it is. It's. It's, it's become. It's. It's. It's become part and parcel. And I'm convinced that that teacher objections. I know this, this is. This is what happened on on, on a university level, uh, but I I know that teacher objections uh, in local school systems to policies that were being enacted where where students weren't weren't being required to wear masks. Uh, that was that was that was a large large part of the teacher pushback that has caused many uh, of these Metro Atlanta school systems to to go to to to, to say that they decide that they're going to start the school year uh, with a virtual learning.
0: Well, and let me follow up too. I mean, one of the things we know about human behavior is that if if something is not required, they won't do it. We we talk about that in class all the time. If I don't require participation and have consequences for not participating. And even though I'm a great lecturer and class is fantastic, there are people who won't come in. And let me just say, I went to Walmart the other day, Walmart of all places. Guess what Walmart had at the front of the store next to the lady that was uh, letting people come in and counting? They had a bouncer. They had a guy as big as a mountain (laughs) who was there. And he had on a mask, and he would look at you. And if you didn't have your mask on, I guarantee you, you went and bought one. Um, And they also you have to make it easy for people have free disposable masks in places. You know, that's one of the reasons people they get embarrassed. They don't have a mask. They're going to argue. People get defensive when they're confronted. But if you say, here's a mask, they're more likely to put it on and then just go about their business.
1: You know, um, Jim, you knew exactly where I was headed, which was to talk next about how all of this impacts school openings. And uh, Chuck, it is not inconsequential, I think, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, that the state school board yesterday, which did have, did was offered a propo- an opportunity to discuss a proposal, to pass a proposal that would have actually set a later start date for state schools, would have said on September 8th, school will start. They decided instead to defer all of that to local municipalities, and I don't think that's inconsequential. It's a suggestion um, that, uh, at least when it comes to schools, it's municipalities, school districts, are in a better position to decide what to do. I wonder if that includes being able to say we want mandatory masks in the classroom, or if that will be counter to the governor's emergency order, which says you can't supersede it.
3: Well, these are obviously very difficult decisions. I think we can all agree upon that. And the uh, focus that is in my mind, certainly I'm not part of the conversation the state school board is having right now, but it's that student safety is paramount and the safety of their family members also is incredibly important. But also consideration must be given to economic impact. Uh, student instruction and education that's taking place and many other very important issues. And I I can understand the the, uh, reason certainly for saying local school systems in Georgia face very different challenges and have different issues throughout the state and local decisions uh, should be respected as to what's best as far as student instruction.
4: Uh, Bill, what you've seen uh, just in the last, I'd say in the last 14 days, is a very interesting uh, separation between, say, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos up in Washington, who are calling for for the opening of schools in person right now, or they're going to block federal funding. Uh, That's not being picked up by Georgia Republicans here. In in fact, you you have right, David right. Perdue kind of uh, pushing a very very uh, emphasizing uh, the the fact that he's he's not going to be telling local school systems what to do. Richard Woods, the state school superintendent, is doing the same thing. Uh, uh, you mentioned masks. Okay, this is this is what's interesting, uh, Bill. Uh, I think Betsy DeVos and Trump were making their statements about July twelfth or so. On, on July 15th, Governor Kemp re- issued that revised emergency order, the same one that specifically forbade cities and counties from issuing mask ordinances. In that same order, he, he, gave, he gave local school systems the right to declare, to, to, to require masks on everybody in the classroom, outside uh, the classroom, uh. on students, faculty, and staff.
1: Galloway thank goodness I have you to keep me straight on this show thank you for that I wasn't I, I wasn't aware of that actually so um, I appreciate your uh, weighing in on that um, so uh, Amy you're um, it, 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 the, we can move on from just specifically talking about mask no mask uh, It is interesting Amy that President Trump, has now started talking in rather positive terms about the fact that people should wear masks, even if he won't wear one. I couldn't help but notice when he was here a week ago, uh, he, of course, came off Air Force One, unmasked Governor Kemp, who's been wearing a mask around the state, greeted him initially wearing a mask, but very quickly he hung it down from one ear when he saw the president wasn't. Ma- I mean, But now the president at least is saying, yeah, people should wear masks.
0: Well, the president is quite concerned about his poll numbers. I mean, I I seem to be the poll person today. And, um, you know, one of the the things that will motivate the president to act in a particular way, at least for a short period of time, in a semi-disciplined manner, is advice from his campaign, telling him that if he doesn't, he will see his poll numbers. Uh, tank even more. So I am sure that part of this is driven by the fact that, again, uh, they're seeing the public respond, and that includes independents that are very critical to both coalitions for Biden or Trump and for many Republicans. You know, Republicans out there are not one mass, even though you may have a group that is very supportive of the president. You have a lot of principled Republicans who believe in things like local control and public safety, and they're responding as well.
1: All right, let's do this. Um, let's take our final break of the show, and when we come back, we'll continue with more on Political Rewind. Hey, uh, Jim Galloway, just to put a period on the conversation we were having before the break, you mentioned David Perdue. Um, i got to say... I think Purdue's emphasis. He's been on Fox News talking about it. He's done local news interviews about it. He's had these virtual um, meetings with superintendents from various parts of the state, um, talking to them very sympathetically about how they're going to get their kids back in school. I I think that's politically. I I think that's pretty smart on his part. It's a fairly. It's a topic everyone has some concerns about it, and he's not doing it from a, a completely doctrinaire partisan position i think it's been a smart move politically for
4: him no what what this, this it, it, it parallels what he did at this time the very time last year uh when we had the, the that that that's, that's a spate of of gun massacres in el paso in in, in near near uh in near pittsburgh and and, and such uh he he is, uh, uh, introduced legislation to to uh, to create a clearinghouse of best practices for 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 controlling gun violence. This is this is what he's done here. He's he's established a clearinghouse for best pro- practices when it comes to schools for the coronavirus. And but it's also and but to your political point, it kind of un- underlines the difference between his Senate race and the one that that involves uh Kelly Leffler. Mm. Because in his 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 Senate race is it's he is in the traditional dynamic of he's won his Republican primary and now he's trying to move toward the center to get as many independents and 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 centrists as he can. Whereas Leffler can't do that, she is she is locked in this in this intense battle with with Doug Collins, another Republican. They're fighting over the over the the Trump base. And so that that prevents her from kind of uh, making that conciliatory gesture that that Purdue's capable of.
1: Let's follow up on Judge just for a second. Sure, sure, Chuck Evstration, do you want me to throw you in the lion's den on this one, the Kelly Leffler doug Collins fight?
3: <laughs> <Get out. laughs> or would you rather, like, stay on the sidelines for right now? <laughs> it's, it's, as we see in presidential election years, there's a lot of uh, different races to discuss right now. And so no shortage of interesting topics uh, to, to chat about. <laughs> I I think he just said no. I take take your
1: point, sir. We'll check back in with you on this sometime down the road a little bit. Darshan Kendrick, as long as we're talking about that first Senate race, um, it is interesting that Cook Report and other prognosticators, respected ones, have uh, moved both those Senate races into uh, basically up-for-grab status. Really, really fascinating, isn't it?
2: It is, but I stopped listening to polls November 6th of 2016 or whatever day that, day that was, so I'm, I'm a little cynical. Uh, but listen, I think we have a, a great opportunity uh, here. It's not like uh, we have Hillary against, you know, first-time candidate Trump uh, on the ballot. We have a long, uh, disturbing, in my opinion, history. By which to judge uh, the person who's going to be at the top of the ticket, so I think it makes the dynamics a, a lot better. And listen, uh, I, I am I'm totally going to be partisan on this and say Kelly uh, and uh, and Doug Collins. Obviously, I, I I want them to go home and I want them to uh, to stay there. Um, and and I think Georgia is really <laughs> in play more than it's ever been before. Not only uh for the senate and for uh joe biden to to win georgia but you know no offense to my chairman but to flip the house uh when i first was elected i was in the super minority and let me tell you it is a not a fun place to be so i'm looking forward to november
1: uh okay audrey as long as we're going down this road I only want to do this i'm going to give you a very brief chance on this because we got a couple other bigger things i'd like to take on when it, okay, so we're watching how Purdue is pursuing this. Um, I would you please help me understand what you think the rationale is behind the spots that Asaf is running on TV right now, where what he does is highlight his work as an investigative journalist around the world. I I really am having trouble, and maybe you can help understand how that advances his uh candidacy here in the state of georgia what's the rationale behind that do you imagine
0: well you know i'm going to have to admit some ignorance because i haven't seen that spot yet I and mean, you've described it oh, and right.
2: uh,
0: i mean that's something i know a lot about i mean if i were giving ossoff um you know uh, advice right now he has so many things that he could go out and present himself as i mean just simply being an alternative to uh, what we see going on right now, because public opinion polls suggest that you know people are unhappy. Purdue, by the way, on Twitter, I told um, Greg Bluestein this a long time ago, months ago. He started shifting to l- l- going away from Trump and talking to his constituents, all of them.
1: So yeah, we've sure talked about also- yeah, we've talked about that on this show, Jim. Well, real quick, any rationale behind this right now that I'm not well,
4: seeing? Look, yeah, look. Uh, the one thing that Donald Trump has emphasized through his last three and a half years is distrust of the of, 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 of our of our institutions. You know, they're 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 all rigged. They're all they're all they're all they're all corrupt. Even as he contributes to, what one might say, to the to the swamp himself. So I think what what's hap- what's happening is you you see Ossoff picking up on that, and 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 running okay. with it.
1: Okay, none of this on my part is to say that I don't think that race is incredibly close and that Ossoff doesn't have a lot that he can run on. I just found that particular spot a little bit odd as as a, as a a in some ways a big welcome, uh, introduction of who he is uh, to a general election audience. Alright, um, l- let's move on and uh, t- talk a little bit about this notion that I just uh, raised a minute ago, Jim. Uh, Darshan doesn't trust polls, I get it, uh, but the Uh, Charlie Cook and the Cook Report thinks that uh, the state is up for grabs in two Senate races. Um, Politico just published a piece the other day reinforcing this notion that Georgia is a battleground state, especially if Keisha Bottoms is picked as the vice presidential running mate, the two open Senate seats, that sort of thing. Um, It's interesting, Jim, that at the same time that, that people are suggesting it could be a battleground state, uh, your friend, Mr. Bluestein, uh, had a piece showing just what kind of forces uh, the Trump people are marshaling in Georgia. Uh, in that way, it is a battleground state already.
4: Right, right. Yeah, look, look. The part of me very much agrees with Darshan that that you know that. Uh, I, I, number one, I don't trust a single poll. Uh, I will trust multiple polls and 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 kind of see where they lead. But but more than anything else, I. Uh, the, the the easiest thing to to to, to e- easiest way to tell how a campaign is going or what what chances are is to follow the money, and and what we're seeing is we're seeing Republicans at every level start uh, pumping tens of millions of dollars into <laughs> yeah. georgia specifically and 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 our our two house members can can talk to it and it's specifically into 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 legislative races because as we as we have said yeah. many many times really the most important race in georgia in november is going to be the the, the, the collective race for the state house and control of
1: it mm-hmm. yep
4: chuck and then darshan weigh in on that
1: would you yeah, I
3: think every two years, every member of the state house is up for re election. And uh, being a presidential year with increased turnout and focus on the state of Georgia with the two Senate, U.S. Senate races, as uh, you all have been discussing, and uh, the real focus on uh, uh, state house races across the state, of course, we're going to see increased interest and participation. But I will just say, I think that in local legislative races, as Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local. When you uh, interact with your community, you work on behalf of the community, you're known um, throughout, you know, in my case, Tequila, Lawrenceville, and work very hard locally, that that many times is uh, removed from the national debate and discussion, and, and knowledge of the work that that legislator does in the Capitol uh, can be very persuasive, and so in some ways, we're, we are removed from the national discussion In our local communities.
1: Darshan?
2: Well, I always boil down uh, particularly this State House race to one word and that is redistricting. Uh, I had the displeasure of going through it in 2011 when I just got to the legislature and it is a nasty, very partisan um, process no matter if it's Democrats in charge or Republicans in charge. It's a partisan process. Um, And so making sure that Democrats flip the house and control drawing of those maps uh, is essentially going to give us, uh, for the foreseeable future, a preview of how power and money is going to be distributed uh, throughout the state of Georgia. So when I think of Georgia House Democrats, I think of that one word, redistricting.
0: You know, I'd also follow up, too, and say that, you know, the dumping of money is not just in the the Democratic versus the Republican pot. We're seeing money being dumped into primaries and runoff elections within the Republican Party, where you see a split between strong Trump advocates and PACs that support him and PACs that support more of the chamber, the business orientation, um, trade. I mean, the Republican Party has its own divisions right now, just like the Democratic Party does, and they are both sinking in lots of cash in Georgia.
4: Yeah, Bill, if I could jump in here, uh, specifically in the ninth district uh, congressional race and the in the fourteenth race, uh, this is we're kind of in the in in this semi discussion of what republicanism will look like in a post Trump world, and you've got these forces mm-hmm. who are saying it's not in Marjorie Green it's we, we don't see it in Marjorie Green Taylor in the fourteenth district or, or or Matt Gertler in the in the ninth, because uh, because of their extremist views, and and they're trying to make sure that that, uh, that that Republicans re- kind of maintain that centrist uh, label. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to uh, uh,
1: have heard you, Chuck, just talk about how in a legislative race, it's much more about your local con- con- uh, connections with your community, how they see in your work. But when it comes to the congressional race that you're dealing with up there, Darshan, you're in uh, – I think you guys are in the same district, are you not? Um, uh the question becomes how much of an impact uh the, the president's growing unpopularity is going to have on whether a Democrat or a Republican wins that uh, Congre- the seventh district congressional seat, Chuck. Yeah, ve- only a very
3: small portion of my legislative seat is in the seventh congressional district, but well, we are certainly hearing oh, okay. about that where we are. Increased turnout though is to be expected across the board when you have Senate and presidential uh uh, elections on the ballot as well. So no doubt that, that that discussion will be had.
1: And Darshan, you just got a little piece of it, too, in yours, I guess, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I just got the, um, the very more than in of it.
1: All right, we're completely out of time. I, wa- I have about three more topics that I couldn't wait to get to with this group. I'm not going to get a chance to because we have to uh, move out of the way for uh, uh, the next NPR show coming up in a couple of minutes. In the meantime, thank you, Chuck Estration, uh, Darsham Kendrick, Audrey Haynes, Jim Galloway. I really enjoyed having you on the show today. Galloway, you and I are back on Monday with another Political Rewind. Until then, take care and please stay healthy. See you all on Monday.